Please take a copy of the Holy Scriptures. There are copies of the church. There's a church Bible at the back if you would like to use that. And turn with me to the book of Exodus. Uh, we've been working our way through Exodus and we've slowed down as we come to Exodus in chapter 20. And we're looking at the Ten Commandments and so we can work our way through the Ten Commandments in a focused and intentional manner we're looking at a, di a different commandment each time. Uh, so we'll be reading from Exodus 20 and 1 to 17. But before we do that, would you bow your heads and as we pray before we come to God's Word? Now, Father, before us is your Word, your holy and inerrant Word. Would you please send us the help of the Holy Spirit so that we might understand it, believe it, and obey it. Show us as we read your law, our own sin and our own need. Show us as we read your law, how Jesus embodies the holiness that is described here and has perfectly obeyed for us. So show us as we cling to the Lord Jesus Christ who perfectly obeyed the law, that all the grace we need to begin to live in obedience to it is available to us in him give us renewed resolve to live for your honor and glory with lives conforming increasingly to the pattern of this law do it for the praise of king jesus in whose name we pray amen so exodus 20 and verse 1 and god spoke all these words saying i am the lord your god who brought you out of the land of egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the, of, on the children the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Amen. We thank Almighty God that he's already spoken to us in the reading of his holy and inerrant word. And today we're thinking about the fourth commandment. Last week we looked at the third commandment about not taking the name of the Lord God in vain. 
So we're looking at verse 8 um, through to, to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and so forth. The Sabbath commandment teaches and reminds us that God the Lord is Lord. God is Lord of our lives. And his lordship claims the prerogatives of order in our days. In the way that he has arranged the week, the Lord God, as it were, is planting the flag of his sovereignty in our lives and claiming dominion over our days. He is the Lord of time. But the truth is, the fourth commandment is probably the most controversial of the ten, the most widely dissented from. It is the one with which many of us have most arguments. And I think part of it is driven by a concern that to give one day away is too much to ask. Because that is, a, I think, is a massive misunderstanding of what has been said or been taught that the fundamental point that the Sabbath is making. Because that is assuming and operating on the basis that our time is ours. But the Sabbath makes the point in a very dramatic and practical and functional way that all time, every moment, belongs to God. He regulates our week and insists that we pay full respect to this basic idea that God is in charge and we are not. But we come at it from, it's too much for us to give one day to God. But all of, all of our days are God's. And keeping the Sabbath and the Sabbath requirement rests and insists on that point. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of my life. I am not my own. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. And the Sabbath commandment is a way to express that fundamental commitment. When we set apart the Lord's day for rest and for worship, we are saying, God is in charge and he orders my days. Now, there, there are various different ways to come at the teaching of Scripture on the fourth commandment. We might simply and well work through the material in verses 8 to in 11, verse in, notice in verses 8 to 10, the commandment itself, the duty commanded, we might notice very helpfully in verses 9 and 10 the comprehensive reach of the command, that it covers all people, even down to livestock and the foreigners within our gates. And we might also notice in verse 11 the fundamental basis of the command, the way it relates to the creation week. But one of the, most great, one of, one of the great beauties of the fourth commandment, in my view, is the way that it connects to the storyline of the Bible as a whole. You can plot that storyline in four simple moves, familiar to many of us, I'm sure. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. That's the biblical storyline. That's the storyline of the Bible. So I want us to look at the fourth commandment under each of those component parts of the biblical plot line. But, but before we do that, before we get into that, just as an aside, be careful to notice in verses 8 to 11, 
the way the commandment is phrased in Exodus 20. It is as much concerned about the sixth as it is about the seventh. The six days as it is amongst, among, about the seventh. The fourth commandment speaks to us not just about a day of rest and worship, but about our lives of labor and work, our vocations and avocations. The fourth commandment is teaching us not just about a day set apart for the praise of God and the rest and the rest of our minds and bodies and souls, but about devotion and duty, rest and business, work and worship. It speaks to the whole as a way of saying what you do Monday to Saturday and what you do on Sunday is all under the lordship and reign of Almighty God. Our little stories are placed in the context of the big, big story, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. Actually, there's no way to understand ourselves, why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing, unless we understand it in light of those four great moves in the Bible's storyline. So we're going to think about work and rest in the light of creation, fall, redemption, new creation at the end. And I'm going to give you three practical ways I hope will help us keep the fourth commandment and then we'll be done. Actually, they, I'm preaching that to me and you can listen in. But number one, work and rest in light of creation. We saw a moment ago from verse 11, the fourth commandment takes us back to Genesis 1 and 2. And to the pattern established by God of creation, work, and rest. God created and he rested. And that was the pattern of God's activity at the dawn of history. And that forms the basis of our own week. We're to work on six days and rest one day in seven because that is the pattern of God himself. Work and rest. So in Genesis 1, when we read of Adam who was made in the image of God, we're also immediately told that Adam was given work to do before the fall. You see, before the fall. And God blessed them and God said to them in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam was given work to do. The verbs that are used here to, there to fill the earth and subdue it are also well translated to tend the earth and guard it. And they were, they were verbs that were used later of the Levitical priests in the temple and their sacred work. So the work given to Adam was sacred work. There is dignity to it that brought honor and glory to God. And as Adam engaged in that work, he displayed his character as the image bearer of God. Human work, work, I think there's a misunderstanding here, not all work is evil. Human work is not a necessary evil merely to be endured in order to get to the leisure time for which we are living. No, that was the, the implication of the work given to Adam, the nature of work as God ordained it. Human work is a way for creatures to display the image of their creator, vested with dignity and sacred value. But God himself has built into our lives a cycle of one in seven for rest and worship. 
because this is, and this is tremendous, we were not built just to exist and function on a horizontal plane, working in the world that God has made. We were made to exist in a vertical plane, worshipping the God who made it all. Sometimes people argue that Sabbath keeping, or the Sabbath principle, is a mosaic principle. That is, that it came from the law of Moses. And therefore, it does not bind all people and does not continue in its relevance and force today, now that Jesus has come. But Moses makes it clear that the Sabbath finds its root not in the giving of the law at Sinai, but in the pattern of God at creation. That's where it, that's where it started, in creation. The Sabbath is a creation ordinance. It's a creation design and is enshrined in the moral law of God and the same law that was written on Adam's conscience in the garden, garden as an abiding principle equally obligatory upon us as the other commandments are. It is required of us, like giving God honour and glory and worshipping no other God but Him, honouring our fathers and mothers. It's as necessary as a prohibition against murder. The Sabbath is of a peace with the whole of God's moral law and is rooted in the pattern that God Himself established at creation. So we can't just drop it. We can't just drop the Sabbath simply because we prefer it otherwise. Work and rest in light of creation tells us that our work is sacred and marked by this dignity as we display the image of God and that the Sabbath rest is part of God's design for us that we might honour him in every age. That's work and rest in light of creation. But secondly, work and rest in light of the fall. The way that God made it is not the way that things continue to be. So Adam, he was in the garden, placed to obey God, did not continue to obey him. He sinned. He fell. He ate the forbidden fruit. And as the Westminster Confession says, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. That is to say, Adam's guilt is ours. Adam's sin is ours. And the consequences of Adam's rebellion touches all of us, even today. It touches the world that we live in. And then Genesis 3:17 and following, God pronounces his curse on Adam's rebellion. And that's when God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In other words, while we are still called to work and to serve God in fulfilling the vocations he gives us, in his providence as images, image bearers of the creator, our work, now that sin has broken the world, is much more complicated, burdensome, and a challenge in reality. We have jobs. 
that constantly remind us the world is a broken place, that demands more of us than we can give. We come home weary and tired and stressed and burdened. And most of us live in Genesis 3, verse 17. We see the truth of it. We feel the truth of it in our bodies, in our tired minds. Think about this. Whenever your back aches from sitting too long at your desk, or your, it feels like your eyes are filled with sand because you've been staring at that screen for way too long, when you feel like buckling under the stress of employers' expectations or maybe your colleagues' demands, when there's a conflict between the needs of your family and the obligations of the workplace, when making ends meet requires more work from you than you have energy to give. Remember Genesis 3.17. When work is thorns and thistles and the sweat of your brow, it is a reminder in your body that this is not the way things were meant to be. And we were made for a different world, another world. And it's into that context that Exodus 28 to 11 speaks. A world of sin, a fallen world, where work, where we see people all around us, where work is too often avoided in our laziness or made an idol of in our greed. If you look all around, where we either work too much or too little. Into that, God calls us to rest one day in seven. And the Sabbath day, do you see, is an act of extraordinary divine mercy. It is a gift of grace that God would grant us one day in seven and say, because he knows our frame and remembers that we are but dust, you need to be still and know that I am God. You need to stop. You need to rest. You need to put down the textbooks. You need to turn off the computer. You need to put down the pen to stay away from the office, to sometimes say no thanks to the overtime, to give your tired minds and weary bodies some rest and give our souls spiritual nourishment. And there has never been a day when it's more relevant. We are always on, 24-7, digital age. We have bleeping and squawking screens. I once, I haven't got my phone with me this afternoon, thankfully, but as you probably remember, um, I once, my phone actually said, it said, hey Siri, I don't know what I said, but it sounded like it, and it started playing, oh, that started it then, and it started, it started playing the Spice Girls. We live in a 24-7 digital, I've never listened to the Spice Girls in my life, but somehow it got it. But, you know, but we live in a 24-7 digital age with bleeping and squawking. So being quiet and resting and worshipping, keeping the Sabbath holy, in other words, is a profoundly, and I mean this, profoundly counter-cultural thing to do. But it is a deeply nourishing and life-giving act that we desperately need. I'm writing for the New York Times from a Jewish perspective, a secular Jewish perspective. Judith Shulevitz discovered for herself in the midst of the frenetic pace of her own life, the bankruptcy of life without a Sabbath rest. 
Listen to what she said. My mood would darken until by Saturday afternoon I'd be unresponsive and morose. My normal routine, which involved brunch with friends and swapping tales of misadventure in the relentless quest for romance and professional success, made me feel impossibly restless. I started spending Saturdays by myself and after a while I got lonely and did something that as a teenager profoundly put off by her religious education I could never have imagined wanting to do. I began dropping in on a nearby synagogue. It was only much later I developed a theory about my condition that I was suffering, suffering from the lack of a Sabbath. There's ample evidence that our relationship to work is out of whack. Ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. From school upwards, if you overachieve, you are rewarded. We admire workaholics. Have you you ever come across people who say, you know, yeah, my my main vice is that I work too much? Do you know what I mean? But but they don't really mean it. They want you to be impressed by them. Because we live in a world that admires workaholics. That thinks it's great. But Judith Shulevitz went on to say, let me argue instead of on behalf of an institution that has kept workaholism in reasonable check for thousands of years. Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. The inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was a much more complicated undertaking. You cannot downshift casually and easily. That's why the Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths were so intentional. The rules did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of will one that has to be bolstered by habits as well as social sanction. That's very insightful. The rules did not exist to torture the faithful. They're not there to torture us. What she was saying was, I could not keep going the way I was going. And she discovered that God's plan for weekly rest was vital and beneficial. Friends, we need a Sabbath rest. It is a gift of grace. And we do ourselves, not just our bodies, but our souls, damage by its neglect. Creation, fall, work and rest in light of redemption. The version of the fourth commandment that you find in Deuteronomy 5 and verse 15 grounds the reason for keeping the fourth commandment, not in creation, but in salvation. Deuteronomy 5 verse 15 you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath day then became a sign of the saving grace of God. It was a memorial for the saving grace of God that there is rest from slavery into which God has brought his people. And we know that slavery is but a type of a deeper slavery, the slavery of sin. And the exodus from Egyptian bondage is just a picture of the greater redemption won for us by Jesus Christ. So the Sabbath is a gospel day. 
It is a day that tells us of deliverance from sin and death and hell by the work of another on whom we rest. It's a beautiful thing. The Sabbath day is a gospel day. It speaks to us of deliverance. That we rest on the work of another, the Lord Jesus Christ, who obeyed and bled, died and rose for us. That is the real ultimate spiritual meaning of the Sabbath. It points us to Jesus. It points us to the gospel. It calls us not to simply rest our limbs, but rest our souls on him. <laughs> Forgive me, I'm tremendously excited about this. Because the Sabbath day is a day that not simply calls us to rest our limbs, but to rest our souls on him. Which is why the day has been changed from the seventh to the first. Because it is a gospel day. And now that the work of redemption has been accomplished in its fullest by Jesus Christ, the stone has been rolled away. Life and immortality brought to light by the resurrection of our Saviour from the dead. We gather on Resurrection Day. This is the Lord's Day. This is Resurrection Day. And you remember how in the opening chapter of Genesis, God said, let there be light on the first day of the week. And the old creation began. And then in the middle of history, as it were, the cross of Christ is the center of eternity. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, on the first day of the week, triumphed. He shattered the grave. He shattered the darkness and began the new creation. It was on the first day of the week, John 20, verse 19, that the risen Lord Jesus stood in the midst of the assembly of the disciples in the upper room and spoke peace to them as he continues to do by his word and spirit in the gospel to God's people who gather on the same day even today. In Acts 20, verse 5, we learn the apostle Paul and his missionary team delayed their departure from Troas purposefully so they could meet with the church who had assembled to hear the word read and preached and prayed and sung on the first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, the believers were instructed to set aside a portion of their income for the relief of the needs of the church on the first day of the week, the day the church assembled for worship. John in Revelation 1, verse 10, tells us he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. The New Testament church, like God's people across the ages, kept one day in seven holy to the Lord for worship and solemn assembly to hear his words. But they kept the first, not the seventh, as in the Sabbath, to the Lord our God. There's something very, very beautiful about that. The first day followed by six days of work. But that is the gospel pattern. We rest on Jesus Christ and resting on his work for us, we work for him. We rest, we work, and in the gospel pattern, we rest on the first day, we live for God's praise in the days that follow. Creation, fall, redemption, and finally and briefly, new creation. What do we learn about the Sabbath in, in, in light of the, of the world to come? Well, very, very simply, the Lord's Day is a picture of a final rest. A wonderful rest that we do not yet enjoy. 
To be sure, Christ has purchased for us the forgiveness of sins. We rest on him. We have rest from dead works that we may serve the living and true God. We have the rest of peace with God by our Lord Jesus Christ. But that rest is not yet complete. Sin still is a deadly enemy. Would you not agree with me? That sin is a constant factor in our lives. Suffering, cancer, sorrow, sickness, death, interrupt our lives and shatter our rest. We are longing for a final Sabbath yet to come when all things are made new. A new heaven, a new earth, the home of righteousness. And so we continue to observe the Sabbath day is a way to say, it is a way to say, it's a declaration of hope. It's a declaration of faith that this world is not our home. And we're looking to the city that is to come, whose builder and maker is God. So we're longing for the day when our earthly Sabbath will cease and give way to the unending Sabbath of heavenly rest in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Creation, full redemption, new creation. We're called to cherish and prize the Sabbath day and use it for the good of our souls. But our real objection, <laughs> the real objection that most of ha us have to the Sabbath principle and the Sabbath command it's not that we can't find biblical warrant for it. It's, it's just simply that we don't want to obey it. We'd, we, we wish we did not have to obey it. We would prefer it did not say what it says. So I come back to what I said at the beginning, because we operate from the principle that our time is ours. And to give one day up for worship is to restrict our pleasure and to impair our enjoyment. I used to talk um, in, in, you know, when I was in Vienna to my fellow pastors. We, we, you know, we met fairly often. And uh, you know, one of them said to me, you know, I said to him, well, you know, cause, because we met at 4 o'clock because we couldn't meet at 10, at 10 o'clock because the church was used by a German-speaking church at 10 o'clock. We met him in the afternoon. But his church, he could have met in the morning. So I said to him, I said, Bruce, why don't you um, meet in the morning? And he said, I meet in the afternoon because at least I catch some of them coming back from the day off. He said, I can get, uh, you know, I, I have more chance of getting people if, you know, because they go away for the weekend, they come back. They've missed the point. They've missed the point. The point is about him, not about us. But we operate from the principle that we give God. But to set apart one whole day in seven for rest and worship, we think is to restrict our pleasure and impair our enjoyment. But listen to the way C.S. Lewis deals with that objection. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. We think the Sabbath will limit our joy, 
because we will have to give something up to keep it well, when in fact it is designed to bring us deeper joy than anything earth can bring. That is the message of you know, one of the key, that is the message of one of the key texts on the Sabbath, on the scriptures in Isaiah 58. Listen to the pleasure language that God through the prophet uses. Isaiah 58 verse 13. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honourable, if you honour it, not go in your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Did you catch that? There is a, there, there is a deeper pleasure. There's a higher joy. Friends, there is a higher joy available than the distraction of shopping or the thrill of the Premier League or the thrill of Formula One. Whatever it is, there is a deeper pleasure than anything the world can provide. C.S. Lewis was right. We're so far easily pleased. And we settle for mud pies in the slum, pursuing our pleasures, our entertainments. We want to be constantly distracted because we think that if we keep the Sabbath, it will take away our joy. I'm guilty of it. My, my pastor friend and I, we used to look at each other, we always did, because I, you know, I used to show up, you know, I used to, you know, he used to preach sometimes at four o'clock, and he, he would say to me, you know, your, your football team is playing, are you not going to, are you going gonna to find a reason to stay at home? And I was tempted, I didn't, but I was tempted. I was tempted. Because we think that if we keep the Sabbath, it will take away some joy when the Sabbath was designed to maximize our joy. We do not need mud pies in the slum when there's an offer of a holiday in the sea. There is delight, the prophet says, in the Lord. Delight. The Sabbath is not a drudge. It is a delight. The day of the Lord is a delight. Delight yourself in the Lord. Exchange the lesser pleasure for the greater joy the prophet is saying. Well, how do you do that? How do you keep the Sabbath day? And I need to be very, very careful. And this is when I go into private mode and I stand there and talk to me because there's a lot I could say. I do not want to bind consciences or restrict Christian liberty or make absolute laws. Absolutely not. But let me offer three very simple practical suggestions for a joyful Sabbath observation that I hope will be a blessing to you and then we're done. Turn off the television, number one. Turn off the TV. Or watch less TV. Give your brain a rest from the noise and the distraction. Read a book. Do you, do you remember them? They have pages. They're made of paper. You turn them, old-fashioned things. Take a nap. That's a novel idea. Take a nap. Play with your kids. Take the dog for a walk. Play a board game. Again, if you don't know what they are, I'm sure you can buy one in Oxfam. But make Sunday a day that is quieter. More conversation, less digital. Just one observation I had. 
Secondly, practice hospitality. If you can, and not everyone can, open your home. Make a little bit more for lunch on a Sunday. Go look for someone you do not know. Find a new face, open your home. Practice hospitality, not entertainment. Be yourself, share your life. Invite someone to spend the afternoon with you, even if you only nap <laughs> in the same room. Talk about the things of God. Talk about the sermon. Talk about the worship. Talk about where you're at. Encourage one another. And number three, bracket the day with morning and evening worship. Come back to church on Sunday afternoon. It's hard to keep the whole day when the day is open-ended. Start with the people of God and the praises of God under the sound of the word of God and end the same way. The Sabbath is designed for the delight and blessing of your soul. Use every means available to secure the blessing offered. Make much of the means of grace. Go hard after knowing Jesus. Come back to church later on the Lord's Day. There's a lot more we could say. We could go on and on and I could commit myself with everything I say. But let me just conclude with this. It's been my experience. It's been my experience. There's a spiritual vitality and health of a congregation is connected to the way its members spend the Lord's Day. So may God give us such an appetite to know more of the Lord Jesus Christ. The rest that he can give, not just to our bodies, but to our souls. Let us never forget the deep delight that is offered us in the gospel. The deep delight that is offered us in the gospel. This is the gospel day. We celebrate what Jesus has done and that we would resolve to make whatever adjustments to our lives necessary to keep the Lord's day holy. For his name's sake and for his glory. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we, we genuinely thank you for the fourth commandment, for the Lord's day. We thank you for the day that our Saviour rose in victory in which he promises to meet with his people in the preaching of the word. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would give to us such an appetite, such a hunger for more of Jesus that we would squeeze every moment of his day for the blessing and nourishment of our souls. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.